Now that my book, I've Got Something to Say, has been out for three months, it's time to step back, survey the grounds, and enjoy the spoils of a project that took about two years to see to fruition. Even though the book is a collection of my various essays I've written for rock magazines, it was very much a collaborative project. I worked with 12 illustrators. Only three were from my hometown of Toronto. I worked with layout designer Ingrid Paulson. I worked with Mount Sinai and biblical member Nick Sewell on layout as well. I asked Duff McKagan to write the foreword. I continue to work with the good people at Feral House who published the book. But out of all these people, the first person I asked on board this project was Aaron Brophy, my old editor at the Huffington Post. It was a big ask for a couple of reasons. I was trepidatious because I didn't know how Aaron would receive the request. In my head, I wasn't so sure the word book and the word author even went alongside my name. Would he laugh the idea into oblivion? Would he even have the time if he didn't? Asking Aaron also meant this idea of putting out a book I'd had festering for some time in my head was now something I had to make into a real thing. You see, the moment I asked someone to join me on this project, to me, meant it was now not going to stop until it was finished one way or another. And thankfully, Aaron not only agreed, but seemed genuinely excited to work on the book. That gave me a little boost of confidence, and the two of us hunkered down for months, months, going through my essays, Aaron reading each one and giving me unfiltered opinions and occasionally ruthless edits, until we had hacked and slashed and carved out the raw shape of the book. The two of us worked smoothly in tandem, and I couldn't have asked for a better editor. I met Aaron sometime in the late 90s, when he was the editor-in-chief of Canada's Chart Magazine, one of the country's only music magazines, and Aaron's wide musical taste bent backwards towards heavy music, something I always quietly noted. In my home country of Canada, I find music journalists will feign interest in heavy music to appear well-rounded, but further inspection will usually reveal the opposite. I'm fine with that, but when I find people like Aaron, someone who can hang on either side, I tend to stick close. And that was another thing. Aaron and I do get along quite well, as you will hear on this episode. That was definitely crucial. I can't work with someone who could do the job, but couldn't quite get the references or the humor contained in the book. I needed someone who was on the same page. Aaron was on both pages, so to speak. The relationship between writer and musician has always been a cautious one. With similar interests, but in different streams, it's natural to assume the two sides could and would eventually become friends. But musicians are wary of getting burned or exposed if they get too close, and writers are wary of becoming too biased in favor of the musician if they get too close. So, it gets to be an awkward tango between two parties that are usually awkward to begin with. For me, I've been equally burned by writers and musicians, so I'm cautious around both sides. Letting my guard down and gaining my trust takes a long time. When it comes to the music biz, I haven't placed my trust in too many people. So the release and positive response the book has received 
only goes to show how effective Aaron and I work together. And my instincts were right to place trust in Aaron's editorial uh, skillsmanship, skillsmanship. Anyway, I'm sure Aaron would edit that word out. I guess this conversation was meant to be about the book, and it is, briefly, before heading straight into a broader conversation about music and music writing. I just wanted to mention here, although it may sound out of left field, but it's Kelly Hansen who sings for Foreigner these days and who used to be in Hurricane, a band I hadn't really given much thought since their albums in the 80s. Sounds odd to say here, and I mention it only here because I couldn't remember Kelly's last name, nor could I remember his old band while Aaron and I chatted, and it bugged the hell out of me after we finished the episode. Listen on to understand why. I guess I should plug the book here, too, since Aaron is such a big part of it. You can visit feralhouse.com. You can buy it on Amazon. In Canada, you can buy it at all Indigo Books and wherever cool books are sold. And in Europe, you can order it through Turnaround Books out of the UK. When we'll be on tour this November and December in Europe, we will have copies for sale at our merch booth too. I'd buy it because as far as I've seen, everyone who has a copy loves it. Okay, here goes. Aaron Brophy, editor of I've Got Something to Say, which is my first book, is on the podcast and it starts now. The Tango Joe's podcast is the best around. Nick Flynn, a kid, his Tango School, I'll tell him for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes. Jimmy in from Fox, don't stop playing Hangs out, too. The googly gaggly goblins will make sure they get their podcast fill by listening to Danko Jones, then snacking on some broken bones. And scaredy cats will run amok when rock and roll starts to talk, flapping gums and striking tongues. A chilly podcast has now begun. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready because the Danko Jones podcast starts. <laughs> Hey, Aaron. It's great to have you on the podcast, finally. Yes. I feel we've been talking about this forever. Forever. Really, years and years. Years and years. The podcast has been going on for seven years uh, come this fall, and we've probably been talking about it for six. Yeah. Maybe eight. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, But it's good you're finally here. There is an occasion to have you on. Indeed. Um, you are the editor. You edited my book, my first and only, well, only and first, my book, my one book. I've got something to say. And um, we worked on this project together for a year and a half. It was surprising to me how long it took. And I've done tons of stuff like this, although not exactly books. You know, I'm a magazine person. And, uh, yeah, I, I was shocked at how long just doing that exact same thing in book form takes. Yeah, I mean, even when um, you know I submitted the completed version to Feral House, I thought it was going to come out in like three months, like a record. But yeah. it was actually more like 
eight, nine months later, 10 months even. I can't remember the timeline exactly, but all I remember was, wow, that's far away. <laughs> yeah. And, and you were ahead of the curve because you already had a completed book ready to submit to publishers too. So think about how long the curve is if someone goes, hey, Danko, your book was great. We want you to write another one. Start from scratch. You know, and that's what's that process two years you know unless you really churn it out yeah exactly so. um and uh, you know at that point when we were when the two of us had kind of finished the project you know unbeknownst to feral house or anybody when it was done between the two of us um i was all ready to go self the self-publishing route which i'm still assuming would have taken half the time like four or five months yeah i I can't imagine it wouldn't be quicker yeah and uh, i totally understand that fierce independent streak but uh i suspect you landed at a good spot in a good home with it with this book oh if if you know if someone had told me that this book we'd be working on would be on feral house i i uh i would have freaked out Mm -hmm. it would have it would have actually really altered the way i thought of the project i would have been too Uh self-conscious because i love feral house as a entity so it 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 worked out i couldn't have it couldn't have worked out better being on feral house you would have also had to rewrite the the book with three stories about conspiracy theories (laughs) two about aliens one about satan yeah Uh, which is the real draw for me. Let's yeah. put it this way. The first Feral House book I ever got was uh, the biography on Anton LaVey. <laughs> so that, <laughs> it's what drew me to the to the, to the company. So, uh, yeah, and, and that's what they really focus on, just really outsider stuff, whether it's, yeah, a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of just odd characters. And I feel honored to sit alongside some of these people that are, that have written and that are written about in the Feral House catalog. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I like to use the term rich tapestry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so I mean, you know, when I realized that, Hey, you know, I think I could do this book and make this be a thing, um, which is always something I've had in the back of my mind, but I I'm never going to write an autobiography. Um, that doesn't interest me. But this kind of collection of essays did, and I, I was tr- trying to... I didn't think about it too long. You were always someone who was in the back of my mind that I had kind of long tapped as editor for whatever project I was going to do in sort of this kind of literary form. And I think I remember you were my editor for when I wrote for the Huffington Post. Correct, yeah. And I remember you asked me to write, and I remember when I finally submitted my first column and it had been given the green light, I wrote you an email and I said, there was, there's always been this feeling I've had in the back of my head where I always thought you would be my editor. It's a weird feeling. It's the same wow. feeling I had when uh, I met JC mm-hmm. in front of the Elma Combo. For the first time, this is yeah. like early what, '90s. What show would have that been for? It was, I believe, it was. Uh, a, w- William knew had those Tuesday nights. Oh, what were they called? I can't. Remember. I know or what the you're Wednesday talking nights? about. Yeah, yeah, the William knew 
open stage for bands nights, mm-hmm. whatever that was called. Oh my God, that was like a staple on the Toronto scene. I can't even remember the name <laughs> of it. Yeah. Um, but I, I met him in front of the Alma Combo there. Yeah. And I got a very distinct feeling that I, I would work with him yeah. somehow. And that's the same feeling I got when we, you know, we finally did this first Huffington Peace thing to, yeah. where you edited my article. So when it came time to do this book and I needed an editor, of course, not just proximity-wise, because yeah. you literally live across the street from yeah. me, but four, seriously. Four minutes apart. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You left your place, like, we were meeting at 11, you left at 10.56, I'm yeah. assuming? So, uh, yeah, but not because of that, but because I always kind of knew, had this feeling that you would be my editor somehow. Mm-hmm. So it made perfect sense, you know. It was easy that we would have meetings down the street. So, but other than that, it was always supposed to be, I guess. Yeah, it's cosmic. Cosmic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, backtrack. You were the editor of Huffington Post, but I met you when you were the editor of Chart Magazine. Yep. Yeah, rest in peace, Chart Magazine. That was, uh, you know, I, I had a couple you know, uh, you know, journalism and media publishing jobs before that. But that was my first big gig uh, working for Chart Magazine, which was a monthly national newsstand music magazine. It was, you know, we took ourselves pretty seriously. We punched above our weight. We, you know, we competed for a Canadian magazine. We competed against you know, Rolling Stone and AP and Spin and Q and all of those like on newsstands against that type yeah. of you know publication. And then we also started a website, Chart Attack, which uh, that was very successful, right? It it was screamingly successful, at least content wise. And you know, like we churned out a ton of stuff, and we were really good at it. We had a huge network of people. Um, you know, we were doing tons of content every day, like good stuff too. Yeah, I checked it. I I think I checked it like daily at at some period. Yeah, there there, there was a point like, when we were really rolling, and then you just didn't have the money to sustain it. And it was like a blabbermouth thing. You had like yeah. a daily yeah news but, note thing. Yeah, there would usually be up to about ten stories a day, oh. and then be some of it would be just like press release rips, and right. but there would be feature interviews, and there'd be you know premieres and all the standard stuff. But uh, for a bunch of a small plucky Canadian publication, we were you know we were pretty good at knowing how to make international stories, and we would hit quite regularly with some good stuff did anything that you guys uh cover or or post uh hit internationally like oh, it's other constantly uh, they you know, pick like, it up like other yeah like uh a good example would be i don't know oasis comes to town and they do a half dozen interviews so we get one slot you know, and uh, we'd use our slot to maybe ask a specific type of outlandish question that maybe Canadian press wouldn't ask or the star wouldn't ask or the sun wouldn't ask. You know, like the regular, more serious people wouldn't ask. So we do our serious interview with the members of Oasis, but then ask two or three like oddball questions or like a really targeted, maybe this could be cause a scandalous answer. And then... 
if we got the scandalous answer, we'd package that up as a separate news story, put that out there, and then all of a sudden, all of England steals that story. And then really? all of a sudden, you know, maybe, you know, people in the U.S. steal that story and say it could be Liam Gallagher told, you know, a Canadian publication that Robbie Williams should be set on fire and, you know, or yeah, whatever, right. whatever the outlandish thing they say, because all they do... Uh, Oasis, all they do is just say intentionally outlandish things to specifically cause that ripple. Right. Um, so all you have to do was plan for it and sort of strategize for it, and you could get all kinds of those sorts of things. Um, what, were there other bands who didn't who were who didn't play the game like Oasis did that ended up, you know, you being the source for an international story? Like just being terrible interviews, or yeah, or just anything that got some traction. Not Oasis is like they're, you know, they're known. They have a reputation yeah. for being, you know, saying outlandish stuff. But was there something like I don't know? You're interviewing Nora Jones, and then she said, "Oh, I don't, you know, I, 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 like, you know, I don't know." <laughs> I can't it, think it's it. funny <laughs> because we did so many interviews with so many different types of people that we got the full spectrum of responses and full spectrum of like you know could be a great really insightful interview could be an absolutely terrible you could tell this person was just hitting their i just got media trained and i'm gonna say my (laughs) three media points is a we're really excited about this record we feel it's a homecoming it's like what the fuck does that mean but that's it it's Mentioned four times in their bio, and right. then they say the same thing oh in their, in you know. In do their, you call uh, them out when they do that? Sometimes, but what's the point in calling them out? Because if they're only going to give you, you know, their sort of official standard responses, that's all you're going to get anyway, right? Like, you get interviewed all the time. You must have a general idea of who you might want to give a little bit more juice to and yeah. who who you don't. And it becomes really obvious really quick. Like, do they seem like they have good questions? Do they have maybe... They don't necessarily need to have a good personality because most music media are just, you know, blocks of wood of horrible people. <laughs> and I say that being... <laughs> I say that being one of them. Uh, but, you know, if they... you know. Say they got a bit of charm or, you know, got good questions or you know they're knowledgeable or they hit you with a good point, you're probably going to give them a little something. Yeah, that's definitely the case. It's been when you sit down for an interview thinking it's just another interview Mm -hmm. and the the interviewer hits you with like a deep question or, or, you know, references a band that they would know you like or Mm -hmm. you know a lot about. So that kind of puts it into another realm yeah. so the interview takes on a different kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, and that's an interviewer that is prepared and, and researched. And, I, and I, I don't say this to mean that, yeah, I, I like to do interviews with people who kiss my ass or who interview, yeah. research me, but your job is to research the subject, whatever it yep. is. And so I think I, I've been to, I was told like, uh, now it's 14 years ago that I need media training. 
by by a, <laughs> it's a pu- little late now. <laughs> yeah, by a publicist of ours who's definitely that was short lived. Mm-hmm. But she insisted that I needed media training, and here I am thinking, and and she did it on the eve of me doing a week and a half press tour in Europe. So what a way to send me off completely insecure. Yeah, I started questioning myself because I'm. In essence, you know, representing the other guys in the band and representing, you know, this project with this new album that we worked hard on. And you're really taking the wind out of my sails and questioning whether I know what what I'm doing. Yeah. And uh, in the end, it was because I feel, yeah, like I would just run my mouth and I'd say whatever I wanted to say. And I wouldn't say those stock answers that, that, and isn't that what you expect from someone? And I would argue, when you don't give the stock answers, that's the reason why a year later, when you come back in town with another record, that you get another uh, or another interview. Yeah. Because if you give us the boring answers and the boring interview topics, and you're not A++ list. Right. Y- you know, if you're A++, you can give the shittiest one-line yeah. answers, and those become news. I, it's shocking to me, like... Lady Gaga says, I like music. I'm like, yeah. and that becomes an internationally you know, quoted quote. It's like, what the shit? It's like, I also like music. Do I, does that go viral? <laughs> you know, but if you're below that tier, you gotta yeah, work it. Yeah, you yeah. gotta, if you're not interesting, those interview ops are gonna dry up and then your media dries up and then. What do you got? Yeah, I, I really that was that the way you phrased that answer was kind of my argument to what she was trying to push on to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it fell on deaf ears. In the end, I uh, I was like, no way. There's just no way I can do this. And so I never showed up. I actually sent the person who was supposed to media train me. I sent her like interview clips, mm-hmm. kind of pleading my case with someone yeah. who we're supposed to be pay, who's supposed to be getting our money and I and even she said yeah I don't think you need this mm-hmm. so in the end it was just a power play I think yeah me uh, this person in our band and what ended up happening was I was under so much stress I got a condition in my eye called CSR which is central serous retinopathy which just 11 years ago it happened and it just came back last uh-huh. month which is blindness in the eye, partial blindness for three weeks. Damn. Yeah. And so uh, that's how much I really clung to this idea that I think I know what I'm doing when it comes to interviews. Um, But anyways, you have a lot of um, experience with interviews, Mm -hmm. essays, editing, articles. You were the perfect choice to have you edit this collection. Pretty excited when you asked me to do this uh, because I don't get to do many things like this anymore. Uh, but uh, I was stoked, and I think it turned out great. I'm thoroughly entertained by it, by the book, but I am a biased audience. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know what? I, I was. I think I told you maybe, or maybe I kept it to myself that I was super nervous about the book's release, mm-hmm. more so than any record of ours i'm not even nervous when those come out um 
because it's been like a record has been vetted through so many years. It's just, mm-hmm. but it was just you and me, really, yeah. just working secretively um, via e- email and and yeah. uh, what's that that app that oh. you, <laughs> Google, <laughs> Google Sheets, <laughs> Google Sheets, yeah. and and so um, I had no idea, and it's hard to to get people to read a book rather than listen to an album to get yeah. their quick opinion on it. So, but since it's been out, which is now like two plus months, two and a half months, I'd say 100% positive feedback. Mm-hmm. And if there's any negative feedback, it, they're being real quiet about it. Yeah. So I'm happy. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm stoked on your behalf. Anytime you retweet or Instagram someone and it'll be like, I don't know. The guy from White Lion just got my book, and <laughs> <laughs> I think you—I think you mean Mr. Big, because <laughs> that was that what, what I, happened. I, I, I saw—I know that I saw that one. I was trying to come up with another <laughs> one, right. just just to just as how who could I one up from? Yeah, yeah. You know, White Lion, the Sea Hags. Do you remember Mike that? Tramp. that? Yeah. Mike Tramp from White Lion. I've never met Mike Tramp, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to, though, man. I'm a big yeah. White Lion fan. But yeah, uh, Eric Martin from Mr. Big the Singer, he now has a copy of I've Got Something to Say. Um, and so, yeah, it's been like that. You know, it's hard to read a book for people rather uh, mm-hmm. compared to like listening to an album. Yeah, you can finish it in 30 40 minutes whereas a book you just oh god. No, it's it's an actual commitment especially in 2018 yeah. versus Netflix, video games, you know, Spotify, podcasts, you know, TV, whatever you want to do, hot yoga. <laughs> I don't do hot <laughs> yoga. <laughs> uh, scrapbooking. Yeah. Um but uh, I, even me, I, like I, I've been currently trying to get through this one book for like a month. Yeah. And every time I read three pages, I'm like, oh, I got a. Did I just get an email? Did I hear that little bell that <laughs> says I get an email? And then I put it down for another day. So yeah, it's hard to get through these days. So anyone who finishes the book and they've posted, people have posted and tweeted about finishing the book. I'm super impressed. Mm-hmm. And they usually also add that they enjoyed it so i'm happy about that then that's the victory um has anybody been giving any feedback on what their favorite stories were yeah uh dungeons and dragons has a couple of people have said the dungeons and dragons essay i I love that story in it's mostly because i love the idea of it i love like Taking a thing that's already a game about your imagination and, you know, you're making it bigger and adding a whole new layer to it. Yeah. I, I appreciate that as an idea. And then your act, your sy- systematic nature uh, of doing it. I'm like, I get that. I understand that, <laughs> that too. Um, well, that's another reason that I think it was great to work with you is you have... Uh, such a wide um, open love of music so Mm -hmm. if i throw like a saxon reference to you you know even though you're a music guy you would still get that reference a lot of people in music pundits even wouldn't know 
Like if I say, hey, you know, who do you like better, Hammerfall or Saxon? <laughs> they would just be clueless. I just saw, did, was it Saxon opening for Judas Priest? Yeah, yep. the, yeah, this last tour in London, Ontario. Yeah. And that place is... <laughs> uh, was it the London Music Hall? Or no, it yeah, had to whatever be Whatever the arena is. Oh, the arena. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. So, oh, wow. I wish I saw that. I was pretty happy I saw it. Um, I love Priest. The, the, we might be getting near end of days for that band. Not, it's not, doesn't quite feel as... I just raised a metal fist there for right. anybody, you know, as, the, the as metal, it used to be. The metal community felt it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was under the impression this is the last one. Because oh. Glenn Tipton is out of the band yeah. now, too. So the KK and Glenn are out of the band. Like, Halford and Hill are the only ones left. Yeah. And even though Halford's priest to me, so is Tipton. Mm-hmm. It's like having Robert Plant without Jimmy Page. I saw Robert Plant recently, too. But I, I can probably go on and on about that because I've spent all of my last calendar year seeing as many classic rock acts as I can uh, because I have this thing called a Before They Die list, and I try to knock off all these really? bands. Yeah. Interesting you would bring this up because uh, Aretha Franklin is apparently on her deathbed. Yeah. As we speak, she's on her deathbed. She's on my list. She had a show scheduled for the Toronto Jazz Festival this summer, and then she canceled it. And I was like, man, I'm not going to get many other chances. I had her on my radar to go see. And uh, if you read the tea leaves, you ain't going to get another chance to see her. Yeah, uh, I had tickets for Aretha Franklin, what was it, in 03? Mm Mm-hmm. Whenever SARS hit, oh, and uh, someone in my family had SARS, so I was in quarantine, so I couldn't couldn't go to the show. Yeah, so that's definitely uh, someone on the list when I hear yeah. about it. I go, oh, damn, missed opportunity. Yeah, my all time number one was Chuck Berry, and uh, I I knew he would. It would, my chances were slim because when I started thinking about doing this list, he uh, he's already, I don't know, 80-something or, yeah. or, or however old he was, and he would occasionally do a monthly residence, residency show at a club in St. Louis. We it was played like that called club. Blueberry Hill or yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, we played that club. Okay. Um, so, yeah, he would show up there, and I had... And a small army of people who were ready and willing to drop anything to like if they heard this another show was going to go down we were going to road trip down there and go see it uh, because it had reached the point where he had stopped doing these residencies mm. which I also was like alright that's, that's it pretty, pretty clear sign but that, was he still playing no no like, like once a year in the summer or something with Jerry Lee Lewis or something like that. The last, I remember looking at a uh, his last appearance there. The set list was just all question marks, like, and there were question marks because uh, apparently it was a question marky set. 
and I'm like, mm. that still would have been worth you know the multi-hour oh, yeah. drive road trip for Absolutely. me to see, even if it was just to see an old man who's incapable of executing most basic musical things, just to like do my you know pay homage to you know the king of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. It would have been worth it, but never got that opportunity. It's interesting we're talking about this because just yesterday I was thinking about this. And uh, I was playing uh, here uh, a Lonnie Smith album. Mm-hmm. I just found it through Spotify. I was just, you know, just searching. I'm like, oh, Lonnie Smith. I haven't heard Lonnie Smith in years. And it reminded me of the first time that I went to New York City. Uh, we were set to record with Jerry Teal of the Chrome Cranks, Honeymoon Killers. Mm-hmm. And we brought with us, for, we were coming from D.C., we brought with us Michelle May of The Makeup. Okay. She came with us. She was in our van. That's random. Yeah, and she ended up being uh, singing on the session as well. And it's a, a song we've never released, actually. We should, but we've never released. Um, and the first night, we drove in, and we got a village voice, and we just looked at the listings, and it blew me away. Everyone, you could see Sonic Youth here. You could see Cool Keith here. You could see, you know, I don't know, you know, Radiohead playing yeah. the big room. But then at the Village Vanguard, it was Lou Donaldson and Lonnie Smith, mm-hmm. and so we went. There was hardly anyone there. I mean, it wasn't a full house standing room only. Yeah. We had seats, and and I saw Lou Donaldson and Lonnie Smith play the first night I was ever in New York City, and I was just buzzing from i couldn't even take in the jazz and at that time we're talking like mid 90s i had an appreciation for jazz but i never really (laughs) acclimated to it (laughs) you know like you you know i was you know uh but but since then of course i've definitely come to love it Mm -hmm. but watching i just knew who they were and mainly from going through jazz records at rotate and wherever just going why don't I like this? You know, and just trying to familiarize myself with all these cats and to use a jazz term. And man, I didn't know what I was watching at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm never going to see that again. But what I was thinking, what my point is when you go to New York City now, is if you look through the listings, would it be the same? Would you be as, as like excited? Because this person, this legend is playing here. This legendary band's playing there. I don't think it's like that anymore, is it? You know what? I'm sure if I went there and looked at the listings, I would still find 10 things where I'm like, oh, we could see this. We could see that. We could see... Yeah, you you could see like, okay, Cat Power's playing here. But but Cat Power's going to play here anyways. But like... Cool Keith and Lou Donaldson. And right. But there's all, there is always those type of acts. Like you're talking about like weird underplays where only, they're not weird underplays. It's like a club show where there's 70 people there and it's, you know, super fans of like some underappreciated genius. We can find those every day in Toronto. We're just immune to them, you know, like in Toronto because we know everybody here and like we, we see them like... Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Stompin' Tom. Well, you're not going to see any shows from him anytime. Oh, oh, here's a great example. Uh, 
you go to the Cameron house in the middle of the week, the middle of the afternoon, like or, or early evening, and they've usually got like some form of house country band playing. And you walk in and they're like, wow, those guys are pretty crack players. And you find out, you know, oh, it's Basil Donovan from Blue Rodeo. Hmm. It's someone else from some other band. Right. And a couple of the Sadies are, are, in, are there. And, right. And it's like, that's a superstar band, but they're playing to 30 people on a Wednesday at 7 p.m. Or, or something. Right. After work crowd. Like, those those gigs always exist. You just have to have your sensors out to hunt for them. Appreciate what is right in front of you. Yeah. Um, I... Yeah, I guess. I mean, maybe I, I I hold like whatever's hip in New York to a, a higher, right. higher level. But yeah, I guess, you know, I understand. I'm just wondering, isn't Lou Donaldson like a legend? Well, sure. But to some people, uh, you know, if you knew that Travis Good was at the Cameron house, you know, just playing side, playing side man for... Right. You know, for an early evening gig, you'd be like, that guy's a legend, and he's there too. Right. He's played with, you know, mm. Nico Case and Andre Williams and whoever else. Right. I was going to list off a bunch of people, then I stopped because I'm like, they played with everyone. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean that, that. Getting back to the whole Lou Donaldson list, your your bucket list thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was I was thinking about that, and I don't know how many bucket list people I would see in the Village Voice mm-hmm. if I was to look today. And that could be me just getting older, yeah. getting more jaded, and not appreciating like newer acts. Yeah, the same way I'm not appreciating local acts mm-hmm. which now you've uncovered and made me <laughs> feel like a sellout <laughs> but yeah but that's just how it is you don't have to love everything i i've mm. certainly learned over the years that there are things i don't need to devote my time or attention to anymore and you know um there are a lot of bands who um you know they may be breaking out and cool but they may be um cool because they just I don't know they're the coolest band on their campus, and they, uh, you know, they catch a little bit of heat that way. And it's like, all right, you speak to a certain demo, you're making, you've got a lot of energy. Those songs aren't that good. You guys aren't that good. I probably don't need to invest too much time, you know, emotionally in you. You know, same with like the coolest band in your small town sort of thing i see those all the time where we fill our legion hall you know twice a month we're playing our cool shows and and like that's great like you got you guys got hustle good for you but you're not the best band in the big city you know and keep working at it you have a chance yeah but if you're not special special in some unique or fascinating way to me, I'm not going to spend my time on you. 
because there's so many other things I can spend my time on. So. Now, when you were, you know, editor of Chart, mm-hmm. you kind of had to pay attention to them because of your your job called for it, right? Well, the one thing about Chart was because we were for sale. We weren't a freebie magazine. Like you actually had to give a compelling reason for people to spend five bucks on you each month. Right. Um, we were definitely uh, prior to. We definitely target and and were aware of what real people actually liked. You know, like what what was actually popular and popular in a genuine way, not in a trickster you know music industry way but like what real people actually gave a crap about and you know would want to spend money on and had fans and and we made sure we did fan service like i'm unapologetic about that and i'm like you know what you have to stay in business yeah we have to we have to eat and we have to stay in business and uh I don't I, I don't actually conceptually understand why someone why it would be offensive to people's sensibilities to not give music fans stories about the acts they they like. So I have that side side to me where it's like I want to make sure I we have to make sure that we were servicing people who cared about this stuff. But I was also, you know, I'd almost also be on my own musical journeys. You know, a lot of the acts I personally liked might have been smaller or might not have been able to push the needle as much. I got sweated so hard by so many friends and so many bands that I liked that, why don't you put us on the cover if you like <laughs> us so much? Why don't I print 40,000 copies of our, my magazine just to throw them straight into a dumpster? You know, like, yeah. but I can't say that to, to people. But it's like, there is so many acts that I loved that I couldn't get onto, onto the cover just because, like, they're not going to sell. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that was the cruel part of it, about it. But the good part about it is, is in the inside pages, I could do a thing like put a two-page story of Oasis right beside a two-page story about, I don't know, King Cobb Steely or Flashing Lights or someone who's like, you know, not nearly as well-known internationally or with no like success in that way. But if you give each of those two acts equal space... There's a certain, you're saying to the readers at least, look, this huge band that you came here for, there, take that article, enjoy it. This band you might not have heard of, they, they're just about as good. Check those guys out too. And I think we threaded that needle pretty well during those years. Hmm. Um, so uh, you're saying you used to do this. Mm-hmm. What are you doing now? You're still in music, and you're still in, yes. you know, uh, you, you still write. You, you're still editing. You're still, what's, mm-hmm. what, what are you doing now? So uh, these days, I uh, I'm a freelance writer. So I'll do I'll do projects like your book. Right. I'll uh, I'll do sneaky behind the th- behind the scenes things like write bios for acts. 
um, and I'll do the occasional you know music story or non-music story um, but my my main gig right now is uh, helping out at the Polaris Music Prize and I basically do the blog all their social media press releases uh, help on their podcast do all sort of the outward facing communication-y kind of stuff and uh, it's not wildly different I still uh, have to deal with you know 200 music journalists and music media you know from across the country you know in, in a, on a day-to-day basis and you know deal with all their idiosyncrasies and uh, everything except now it's all in service of sort of promoting the records that they vote on and decide are awesome instead of like assigning stories about those same records right so. right um, now one thing I noticed about Chart Magazine back in the day was it was also a big booster for new writers, right? It also was kind of uh, uh, like sometimes a writer's first gig or first writing yeah. gig. Um, so now that you're presiding over a certain part of the Polaris Prize with all these journalists, are some of these like, you know, writers that used to write for you that you're well aware of and well acqu- they're well acquainted with you and... Yeah, it, it's it's alumni funny. kind of thing. Yeah, there there's we uh, well there was a reason why we used young writers. Uh, there's a couple reasons. One, we wanted people who were of the age and of the scenes, you know, as much as possible to try to try to like dig up that sort of stuff. And I say that you know as an old you know grumpy old music writer now is like you know like these kids, I can do that story better. But it was important for us to try to get that voice right. um, and try to get like people that are deep in it because they were the best at churning that stuff out, even if maybe they weren't polished writers. You know, if they knew the cool band, if you had a kid who is who knew every, you know, hardcore crust punk, you know, <laughs> band that's playing the big bop <laughs> right <laughs> you know or or reverb or whatever and you know knew all those bands intimately you know i'm not going down there to do that <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so you know you got to have uh, someone that can you know get that so right. that's one of the reasons why we'd always uh, get that um another reason is um because we had a really strong um, contingent of women uh, or female readership, we we tried to get a lot of female writers too. It was never it never reached fifty fifty, which is was our idyllic, yeah, uh, our ideal goal. But we you know if you were, sounded like you were halfway competent and halfway interested in contributing and you're a woman, we probably try to give you a shot because we wanted to make sure those voices were being served you know like you're serving your audience right. fairly and then um, the other factor is we didn't pay very well so that was one of the defaults was you can get away with paying you know young new writers not very well and then 
what would happen is the really good ones would just move on to bigger and better things. And it's like, I don't begrudge you because you got to eat. Yeah. You know, I get it. And maybe we can bring them back for like to do a cover story. When I have real money, I can go here, take X amount to do this cover story. And, or I know you love this band. Come on back and do this one. Right. And we generally would have enough goodwill to get people to come back under those circumstances. But that's why we had so many young and like emerging new writers. And, uh, and there's so many of them out and about in the world now that they've just published their first book or their second book, or they just got a book deal or they're now, you know, the main writer at whatchamacallit or who's it, or just did a script for something or other. Right. So many of them have moved on to bigger and better things. Whoa. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to take much credit for it, but I know they have deep bylines buried early on where they probably said something when they were 20. That's probably embarrassing to them now. <laughs> but I'm like, I remember when X wrote for us. Yeah, I've been on the receiving end of a lot of those. Um, and... Uh, you know, my relationship with a lot of these writers, it's hard to track writers from other countries, mm-hmm. you know, because it's in another language. And but, but, you know, living, being from Canada, and you get to know the closed circle of writers. Yeah. Some of them I'm, that I had problems with, you know, just being the subject of whatever bias they yeah. threw at me. There's a, it's like a, it's almost like 40-60, where 40% we've kind of come to terms or we're friends now and everything's cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then there's that 60% where I don't know where we stand. Yeah. And within that 60%, there's like maybe 25% like, we are sworn enemies for yeah. life. I can put out Bohemian Rhapsody and you will shit on it. And I know you're going to shit on it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting... That's not really covered very much, the relationship between a band and and writers. Yeah, it's really weird. Uh, You know, because of the position I was in and kind of to this day the position I'm in, I rarely ever got, I don't know, we'll say the, the true, you know, sense of whether or not... I can someone considered me an adversary. I get the meet and greet, you know, hey, how's it going? Yeah. Like I always got the meet and greet, you know, hey, hello. And there was there'd be a few acts that, you know, I personally adored that I became friends with, you know, there's max a half dozen that I can say I'm genuinely friends with them and I genuinely like their music and you know, like even if they make a bomb of a record, I could maybe honestly tell them that and still consider them above, you know, yeah. you know nothing would change in my eyes. Um, but everyone else, it was, you know, very diplomatic, meet and greedy. But I understand there's writers who would hate at certain people and every now and then you'd let them have a go at an act. Yeah, and you'd just have to go, listen, Whatever you write, you have to be able to win in an argument. 
or have other people agree with you in an argument. Yeah, you, you'll, you, yeah, that, and that was my whole thing is like, hey, your opinion is valid. If you don't yeah. like the music, I'm not going to shit on you for not liking the music. There's yeah. lots of albums that I think suck too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cheap shots are what really got me. And cheap shots are so fun to do. But you have to, A, you have to do them really well. Yeah. Like, like, Oh, touche. I'm I'm the first to say it. Right. Like, your standard has to be, like, if you do a cheap shot, it has to win a roast battle. Right. You know, like, you can't just go, this is the suckiest suckitude in Sucktown. Yeah. Actually, that would be kind of funny (laughs) if someone wrote that. Um, But, you you know, like... we were also, you know, from our perspective, we we're also kind of a little bit on side. You know, we we're always 60% on side mm-hmm. as opposed to being completely neutral. You know, if you if you didn't hate a thing, you know, be a little positive because all our people are fans. You know, we weren't neutral neutral. Uh, but if you truly hate something, say it. You're allowed to say it. But you got to be good at it because someone's going to come back at you. Their fans are going to come back at you. Uh, girlfriends of the band members always come back at you. <laughs> um, you know, like you have to, you have to be able to stand behind your words. And there's been a few times where I've had writers write terrible things, written in a terrible way, where it's like. God damn, I got to defend this guy. And I don't know if it, I'm going to be able to when their publicist calls up and yells at me, which would happen semi regularly. Mm-hmm. But I got to defend my writer because if you don't defend your writers, then yeah. you don't have anything. So you like, your writer said this and this. First of all, that's factually incorrect. Second of all, who says that about that? And then it's like, ah. Oh. Man, yep, I hear you and understand, but it's part of the game. There's, mm-hmm. uh, I'm pretty sure at various points we were blacklisted from almost every major label. We were definitely blacklisted by House of Blues for a while. Um, sometimes you got to stand up for your, yourself and your convictions just to make sure you were doing what you thought was right did you get off the blacklist eventually uh for most of them yeah you know, it just did put us in the penalty box and then... <laughs> i remember this one time i got sweet revenge on this writer who for years had just shat on our band mm-hmm. never met him shat on him and he showed up to a gig and i'm not going to say the gig because then he'll know what who I'm I'm talking about him. Uh-huh. But anyways, he thought he was going to be a smartass. And after the gig, he showed up with his laminate to get it signed. And on the laminate, it said his name. And he has such a distinct name. It's, his name isn't Dave Smith. Mm-hmm. You know who it is if you see his name. And I looked at his name. I looked at him. And I looked at his hands holding the laminate. And they were shaking. He asked for he asked for me to sign it, and then I looked at I turned to JC and JC knew this guy had just shat on our band and the two of us together, we just bullied him. Where I was just I just went to JC and I go, look, his hands are shaking, just to like just uh-huh. like. So I signed his laminate, 
and I, I wrote, "Are we cool now?" And that—that's basically. He took it to mean like, "Are we friends now?" Uh-huh. But I meant, "Do you think we're cool now?" Because you, you know, you're getting yeah. me to sign his autograph. But uh, was this a Canadian guy? Yeah. Uh, I I don't want to pre- I don't want to. You ma- know I, who it is because I've actually emailed you going, "What the fuck is this guy's deal?" <laughs> I, I so I've forgotten because we trash talk so many people so often yes. secretly, um, but I, I don't want to ask you any more questions because then I'll know and then you I know d- who I, he is and then I'll uh, yeah we we won't say anything more about this <laughs> yeah but. But hey, listen. If that's fair game, I mean, not fair game, but if it, if that's what it took to squash some sort of beef, maybe mm-hmm. saying this now reignites the beef. So be it. But I, I saw his hand shaking coming up to me. That was enough. Yeah. I was, I was, la- I was laughing. We laughed about that for the next couple of days. It's nice when it happens like that. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I, I, I also feel like it's fair game. And, and being on the other side of, you know, the, the curtain, writing, and mm-hmm. I have written reviews, and I have written mm-hmm. about bands for other magazines, and um, what I've said online as well, opinions expressed online about other bands and whatever, have landed me in hot water. Mm-hmm. So I know the feeling as well. But just like you were saying, I can back it up. Yeah. And what I find is, what I, I lost respect for a very, very big band. Um, and I said something about them. And it got back to them. To, to hold on to what I think of one album, when I can offset that by years of posting how big a fan I am mm-hmm. of their work. I feel like only a true fan gets to say, gets to criticize. And that's how I felt I was. Yeah. And and so I understand both sides and I understand about um you know having a go at a band as well. I just like an album. If you if it's good, I like it. But I'm not going to like dive into you and your thing never uh, again. I mean, it's probably the right decision though. Uh I I go to so many of these before they die shows where I see people having the greatest night of their lives and I'm there to see three songs that I loved and I'm like yeah foreigner I got to hear jukebox hero (laughs) you know and you know cold as ice and you know I'm like yeah it doesn't matter to me that it's the substitute singer that's great he's amazing he the the new foreigner they're genuinely great yeah and but you know like I'm I'm satisfied. I've scratched an itch. I can like go. All right, that has happened. You know, like I'm I'm set. But then there are people that are just swaying like, and they might go to one concert in five years. You can tell. You can like, they don't know how to get into their seats. They don't have. <laughs> right, they yeah. don't know navigate. You know <laughs> the, you know around the venue or whatever. Every merch item. Yeah. Is is they're wearing. And they're having the best time like this is fucking greatest moment and i look at those people and like they are experiencing a joy and a fandom that i rarely get close to and i'm out at shows every day well not every day but i'm all the time and i'm hunting for things that i know that i like and i can't approach just that near religious experience they're 
they're feeling and go like, you know what? You're having your moment. Go for it. You know, like I'm glad that you're having that moment with that band. Uh, but I can't really reach that level very much anymore. So I get it like that anymore, but you have, I understand it on a, like a clinical level and I'm close, you know, uh, the right band with the right song, you know, I still get all the shivers and all the tingles and all the, you know, out of body, like every, every ideal, perfect reaction. I still, I can still achieve that high, but it takes a lot of like, I don't know, surgical, precise targeting (laughs) for me to find it. (laughs) Doesn't that automatically take all the fun out of it? It's 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 uh, sometimes it's a thankless quest, <laughs> but I'm committed to it. Right. Getting back to Foreigner, though, I think his name is Kelly. I can't remember his last name. I, before he joined Foreigner, what was that guy's life like? Because he looks like Steven Tyler mm-hmm. on his best day. Yeah. Steven Tyler's best day is his regular day. Kelly, oh, I can't remember. Yeah. But. What was he doing before? That's what I when I when I we played with Foreigner and I yeah. saw the show and I was like, what was? Why haven't we all known who this guy is? Yeah. If David Lee Roth didn't become David Lee Roth, he would still be this wild guy. You gotta meet this crazy wild dude who works at yeah. the at the you know model airplane store. What was he doing every day? This guy would wake up. He's like yeah. Steven Tyler, like in the seventies, like, and he's an older dude too. It, to me, it's got to be like that Charles Bradley phenomenon where, mm. you know, it's like, man, that guy sounds like James Brown. Well, there's a reason why he sounds like James Brown is because he spent all this time like basically being a James Brown, and now that we've discovered him, he's great on his own. But, you know, like, those guys, they're everywhere. They just maybe never had the shot, or they were in the wrong bands, or they tried to write their own songs, and those songs were terrible, or they veered off, and like, I'm I'm going to do a new country record. And it's like, no, your voice, you have the voice of someone who can do Freddie Mercury. You need to cut your hair short, grow a... You know, peculiar mustache and do Queen. You know, until someone, until Brian May goes, we need a Queen singer. Uh, let's have another contest. And yeah. that guy's a spitting image. We'll use him instead of Paul Rogers. No, I think I'm going to stick with New Country. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they usually end up. Well, yeah, it's usually based on a series of bad decisions. Yeah. Until someone goes, you know what? If you want to eat, you're going to take this job being the singer of this band that gets to play sheds in the summer and just do it and you'll make thousands of people happy and that will be way better for your career too. Yeah, and you, it's, it's, it boggles my mind and I'd love to know what he was doing before. I know nothing about him. No, me But neither. I don't think most people do because he would have had X of such and such right. band before his after his name you know so i'm assuming he was plucked from obscurity yeah i could be wrong but wow he blew me away yeah um but yeah 
five minutes on Foreigner. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> There are few fandoms who make fun of the band's uh, band members more than, say, Sloan. Like, if you know Sloan fans, Sloan fans are relentless on those guys. But each and every one of those Sloan fans would die for the members of Sloan. And I'm glad the Sloan guys are smart enough to know that. Yeah. Whereas other bands who are so huge, I'm going back to my previous story, yeah. whose egos have been like jerked off to the point where there's just no jerking off left, <laughs> they cannot decipher yeah. this. I mean, I even tweeted Jay Ferguson over the weekend. Mm-hmm. He, did you see that post he did where he was? I didn't. He was DJing on the wheels of steel, and he had a he, he was holding up this, these records. One was a Primal Screen record, uh-huh. and I go, "Can you? Are they really called Wheels of Steel if it's just twee? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's really all just twee?" And then he goes, "The wheel, the wheels of steel," and I go, "Yeah, <laughs> good one." So yeah, they they're you know they can catch they can get it. Yeah, they're they're a band I love. And... I love that band. Yeah, and uh, I, I, and all four guys, I, I think they're great dudes. Yeah, and you know what? They have survived in Canada for so long, and they can eat doing what they do, and that's a rare and incredible you know thing. So that double album they put out a few years back, maybe five, six, seven years mm-hmm. back, is probably my favorite the one with all the one minute songs yes that's probably yeah my that's a great record yeah. I'm, I'm presuming you've been on many builds with them how many times do you think you've played with them not too many really uh, like not like a alston apple picking festival no, you know we like don't, we don't do that circuit they do that circuit See what I mean? In jest, poking, fun. Never mind. I they love, can I take love it. all those festivals. I one of my jobs is I have to monitor uh, every festival in the country to see what acts uh, Polaris nominated acts are playing them, so we can give them a little nudge and go, "Hey, the uh, Salmon Festival in Salmon Arm, BC, is having X act playing Salmon Night." And wow, I'm really bad with repetition is that, today. But is that a real thing? There's tons like that. Right. Why my do we favorite, play that? My favorite is there's a one in uh, Quebec. Uh, I think it's just outside of Montreal. So maybe one of the suburbs called the, the Poutine Festival, which... I will play that. Which strikes me is the most ideologically perfect festival. A Poutine Festival. It's got my name written all over And they always book great bands. Like, they... They're really sharp booking. I'm like, man, one day I just want to get to that festival, eat a crap load of all kinds oh of poutine, God. watch some bands. Perfect. I want to play that festival. See, that's the thing is, you you know, the apple picking festival, the salmon festival here in Canada. These are our, these are the festivals. These are yeah. the regional festivals. We don't get to play that. Instead, we're playing Summer Breeze Festival in front of like 30,000 people. I see what you did there. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> Just a way to... Yeah. Another poke at Sloan in jest, tongue-in-cheek, yeah. but truly we are playing 
Summer Breeze, which is a humongous festival. What date? Uh, actually, this is gonna. This podcast will be posted after the, we play the festival, oh, but it was. It's wasted, this Friday. Wasted opportunity. It, yeah, it's this Friday though. <laughs> and then the day after, we're playing um, a festival in Holland with uh, Uli John Roth. Wow. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> I cannot wait for that. I cannot wait. Oh, I have to ask on camera or on on mic. How did your uh, festival with Lee Aaron go? Okay, we're uh-huh. gonna it, yeah. This is the recap. It was amazing. Uh-huh. I had an in because uh, her guitar player Sean Kelly is a guitarist about town. Yeah, I mean everybody knows him, but we'd never met. We've only kind of emailed and tweeted each other. Mm-hmm. So there was my in. There was my excuse to get on stage and meet Sean. And hey, you got to meet Lee. Well, yeah, I might as well. It's been only, like, decades that I've wanted to. Um, so, yeah, no, she was great. Uh, really, re- and she was talking to me, like, like a minute and a half before, on the stage that they were playing, a minute and a half before showtime. I was like, shouldn't I, shouldn't I leave and let you get in the zone? And she was like, nah. No, she's a pro. Pro. She, she doesn't, she's unfazed. <laughs> she doesn't need your cone of silence. No. I need to concentrate, no. get into character, psych out time. She is psych. always there. Right? Yeah. But they started with Metal Queen. Which Amazing. was wow. And then they ended with uh, what you do to my body, which is perfect. I mean, yeah. great bookends. So, uh, yeah, and the whole band was really nice, and she was, she was very nice. But they had had a 25-hour plane delay getting to the festival, so they were a bit beaten. Yeah. They had to, you know, they stayed for a little bit, but we were playing later on. They couldn't wait, so... You can put in your bio, shared stage with Metal Queen. Technically, no. She played the other stage. There was two stages, oh. and they would kind of, when one stage is finished, they, so we played the other stage. Having written numerous bios, that does not Doesn't st- matter. <laughs> <laughs> also, yeah. that night, we headlined over Mr. Big, but we all know we closed the night. It's different, but, you know, I'll just say that. Yeah. It was Mr. Big and then us. Yeah. Their, uh, what is it, 10 million sold song? What is that? That's played in every wedding? Uh, uh, I don't to know. be with you. Oh, is that it? Yeah. You say you don't know it. No, But I'm... when you hear it, everybody knows it. Yeah. It's a, oh, na, 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 to be with yeah, you. Yeah, thank you for putting that in my head. It will stay there for I, the rest of the day. When that came out and the age I was at, I would have been defining myself against those, like, no, man, none of that right. ballad shit. Slint. Thrash. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Nuclear assault, man. Yeah. But let's be honest. Suicidal tendencies. I love Mr. Big. And I love suicidal tendencies, and I love poison, but I also love Slayer. It's th- now there's no sides anymore. No, it, it is definitely. I find those arbitrary lines silly now, um, especially you know the older I get as a music fan, and I'm just hunting. You know, it's not necessarily hunting for the new sounds. You know, I don't need like this guy takes his laptop and then sets it on fire, <laughs> records this, the, the melting wires, and then 
cuts those up in you know a program and those become the digital beats i'm like i don't need that as my process i just need to be directed towards the good you know i like a certain amount of intensity i like acts that say something you know, you can say something, you know, the most outlandish thing or the funniest thing or the stupidest thing or maybe even the wrongest thing, but say it with some genuineness. That's what I care about. Just point me in the way of those bands, you know, and that they're doing it well in an interesting way. You just gave your conclusion to your podcast here, the, your, your guest appearance on the podcast. This those, is the best way to end. If those are my last words, so be it.